couple weeks back when I was mapping out my preaching schedule, actually more than a week back, a couple weeks, about a month ago, I saw that I would be done with the series we were on, and I thought, if I were to preach a sermon, or better yet, what text um, would I want to think of and meditate on and, and uh, muse over as I enter into a new year? The text that came to mind was Isaiah 49. And so I thought, hey, I'll just uh, uh, preach that this morning as an encouragement for us all as we um, anticipate tomorrow, tomorrow's joys and tomorrow's burdens. Um, Isaiah 49, I think, is the text, one of many, but the text that is most applicable for us this day. Um, so let me um, encourage you. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7 will be our focus th- this morning. However, I will be focusing on verse 4 primarily. But let's read 1 through 7 um, uh, uh, this day. Please stand together with me as we read this portion of God's Word. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord of my reward with my God. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, in order that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. This is one of so many that instructs us and guides us and um, encourages us as we look forward to an uncertain future. Lord, we don't know what's going to happen next year. But Lord, what a wonderful encouragement and assurance that we have in a passage like this, which joins his voice to a chorus of passages which encourage us, your people, as we endeavor to serve you. Give us the grace, O Lord, as we study together to keep Uh, present, Lord, to not let our minds wander, that, Lord, we would dive into this passage together and and study it and be encouraged by your grace. Holy Spirit, that will only occur unless you work. You must work this day, O God. We pray this for your glory and praise. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Any of you in your ministry in God's kingdom, in your life, ever come to a point where you find yourself saying, what have I gotten into? You ever feel like that? 
your dating, your courting, and, and engagement, all wonderful, incredible times. And then you get married. Children are a gift from the Lord, right? Blessed is man whose quiver is full of them. So you welcome, we welcome children. And then you spend the first eight months of their lives with a sick child. Or your child becomes disabled and ill or dies. When you were in your uh, younger adulthood, you praise the Lord for your singleness, for the ability to go anywhere, to do what you want as an adult. But now God's waited 20 years, plenty, uh, 20 plus years, and you're wondering, Lord, what, what, what have I done to miss the call for marriage? You've got a difficult diagnosis pending. Your health has taken a turn for the worse. <clears throat> you never dreamt that getting so old would be so hard. God's word says, hear this carefully, 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. I take from this verse that we will not be immune to the trials and difficulties of life. That all of the evil under the sun, God's people are candidates to be the victims of, of any and every evil under the sun. You say, well, if, if that's true, what's the point of being a Christian? What benefit is there in following Jesus Christ and professing faith and serving him on this side of the grave? Our passage this morning answers that question. Quick reminder, Isaiah was written around 740 B.C., and he wrote over a span of 60 years, ending roughly around 680 B.C., and as this incredible prophet of the Old Testament, highly educated, the most educated prophet, believed the highest status, believed of all the prophets, this man wrote um, this incredible prophecy, which contains three distinct sections. Chapters 1 through 39 were written as an exhortation that Isaiah gave to his present generation. Isaiah 40 through 55 was a prophecy written for a people 150 years after Isaiah. People who would go into the exile. I mean, look at the text we just read. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. He's talking to people who are in exile at this point. 50, uh, 40 through 55. And then 56 through 66, he advances another 100 plus years to 536, all the way down to 444, to adjust the generation of people who God would bring back to the promised land. Now, our passage, Isaiah 49, is in that second section, the section which is written to people in exile, which means of all the faithful people of God, faithful Jewish people who at this time were serving God and yet watched their houses get burnt down, the loved ones die, having their hands put in chains, walking into exile. Who therefore would conclude, so that's what you get for serving God. Tempted to, right? So that's what you get if you serve God, your house will be raised. This is God's message to them. Now, 
This is bigger than that, though. This message is also, as we know, the Old Testament bears testimony, witness to Christ. Therefore, we also recognize that Isaiah 49 ultimately is referencing the servant, capital S servant of God, Jesus Christ himself. So we're going to look at this from, from that uh, um, beautiful crystal. We're going to see different facets of it as we look at this passage. First, let's begin with the context. Notice with me verse 1. Um, and uh, or at least uh, the outline. I think you've got this in your bulletin. I don't know if I give you that. Yes. So you got this outline. I mean, your bulletin. Would you notice verse one? Isaiah, first of all, is 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 given the notice that he was called by God before the foundation of the world unto the ministry of God's kingdom. Notice with me, verse one. Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention to me, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. So this servant was chosen by God before the world began. And by extrapolation, therefore, this is describing you and me. Notice the second point he makes, verse 2a. He's, he was given the unstoppable ministry of the word of God as his tool. Notice 2a. And he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Anytime you read in Scripture of the sword in one's mouth, they're making reference to the word of God. Okay, His, his weapon was not a physical sword it was the sword of his mouth, which is his words. So this servant was given words as a vehicle of ministry, which would thus, of course, is the unstoppable ministry of the word of God. Then would you notice to be, he was specially prepared and equipped to fulfill his calling to be. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. That brings us back to Exodus and the cleft in the rock, right? In the shadow of his hand, he concealed me, and he has made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. To make a select arrow is to take it aside and, and, and work on it, right? Um, a temperate, um, a chisel off things that, that, that don't uh, belong. But he does this in secret, in private, for himself, third, uh, which was the second point, or a uh, third point, especially uh, prepared and equipped. Then lastly, would you notice verse 3 in this context? Um, he was set apart for the very specific purpose of glorifying God. And he said to me, you are my servant. We could say, O Israel, and, and there could be referring to the people of God as a whole. It could be referring to the, the, the description of who Jesus Christ is or the individual child of God. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Not to whom, it's through whom, in whom, I will show my glory. Now, brothers and sisters, based upon this build up, it is natural that you would think and I would think that this servant is going to have an incredible ministry. In fact, speaking of glorifying God, skip down to five through six. How would he do it? Look at five. And now says the Lord God who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. So the exiles of Israel and the exiles of Jacob. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Based upon that passage in verses one through three, we would conclude that, th that God has called this man and set this man up for incredible blessing. This man would not only have a mega church, right? He'd be preaching to 
thousands upon thousands of people, but his ministry would go worldwide. He'd have headquarters in, in Europe and Asia and Africa and right everywhere, North America. He would have this far outreaching ministry so far we would expect millions upon millions of people coming to him. Right? That's the expectation. Um, and some of that is, is because of the way he describes this man. I would uh, use the language that Lorraine Bettner used in his work, work on the Reformed Doctrine and Predestination. Um, this man would be a man of destiny. Lorraine Bettner described the man of destiny as someone who has this uh, conviction that God Almighty, the unthwartable King of Kings, has ordained for me, chosen me, and set me up for great things. Augustus Caesar, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Patton, every one of those men believed they were men of destiny. That God had, had risen them up and appointed them for something fantastic. That's exactly how we would think here. And you know what, brothers and sisters, based upon the teaching of the Word of God, I think that you and I could, could potentially conclude that about us. Right? Think of Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Or Romans 8, 37. We are more than conquerors. Or Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Brothers and sisters, what is holding you back? Seize the day, carpe deum, uh, uh, day, I don't know Latin, carpe deum, whatever, deo, whatever. Um, seize the day, um, right? That's the idea that we can easily uh, conclude. Based upon this, we think of Joshua, whom God said, be strong and courageous, through whom God led his people to conquer the promised land. That's the child of God. We think of Paul, who said, all things work together for good, indeed, to those whom God loves. Man, we're going to have a fantastic year this coming year because, brothers and sisters, we are men and women of destiny. That's what you think based on one through three. And if you think about it, one through three were realities that were hashed out over time, over a, over a lifetime until this servant was called. So he learned, man, God set me aside from my mother's womb. God ordained me. He, he, he equipped me. He, he gave me his word. He gave me a commission. And, he, and notice the stress, the Holy One of Israel, unstoppable God. And that brings us now to verse 4 and his disappointment. But I said, in response to all of that, shocker here, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. What a shocker. In essence, we're fast-forwarding the verses 1 through 3. We're fast-forwarding a couple years. And we don't see a megachurch. We don't see a worldwide ministry. What do we see? We see a, a, a man discouraged and depressed on steroids. This man is struggling. Notice the words, I have toiled. That word in the Hebrew refers to a work of exhaustion. Secondly, in vain. The word for vain there references that which is without result or of no purpose. The word in vain, reek, 
That word is in the emphatic uh, position. This, wor- this, this verse literally translates as this. For nothing I have labored to the point of weariness. I've been working for nothing. God gave me this call and what have I done? Nothing because everything I've tried has, been, has resulted in zeros. Nothing have I done. Notice the next phrase. I have spent kalal refers to something that is brought to completion. It's used in that context. So you could translate this all or every last bit. Okay, I brought this, this thing to its, to, I, I used it up. It's brought to completion. The candle has been all used up. That's this word. I have used up all of the word my strength, um, koach. The strength here is, is used of youth. It's the ability to produce it's the, it's the strength of youth, right? Christ was called at, 35, uh, 30, or at the age of 30 years old. He was at the high point of his strength in terms of physical, emotional. In that day, you think a 30-year-old, that's when you ordain priests. Okay, that's when they're at their high point, right? I have, um, I have, I have brought my strength to completion. I used every last effort that I've got in this, in this 30-year-old body for what? Notice the last two words. On nothing, tohu, and vanity. Chevel. Tohu. If you have ever heard preaching on Genesis 1, you probably know that word tohu because the earth was tohu and bohu. It rhymes really nicely when you translate it, right? The, God saw the earth and it was tohu and bohu, what is tohu? Formless. Okay, I have spent the strength of my youth on formlessness. It has no form. What has no form? Vanity. Vanity here references breath. So on a very, very cold day, you go, and this, you see it, right? This little vapor. And it's no form, it's a, well, there's no, it's amorphic, is that the right word? It has no form. It just sits there and, and then quickly dissipates. That's what this passage is saying. I have exerted the best years of my life to the point of death. Think of the cross. For what? You realize when Jesus Christ died, the thousands that followed him when he fed them and professed a desire to be his servant. The 12, who now became 11, who then completely abandoned him, they're all gone. He's on the cross by himself. Now, as God, you go, well, of course, he understood that from the foundational word. That's the work he came to do. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But as a man, brothers and sisters, you got to realize everything Christ went through, he went through as the infinite God, man. And as a man, he would have gone, he would have responded to much of this the way that you and I do without sin. He's up there by himself. He has one piece of fruit at that point. Who's the, the fruit? Okay, someone who would be crucified, or better yet, continue to be crucified. He's hanging on the cross, and the only uh, um, uh, result of his labor 
is a criminal sitting next to him who defends him. Not his disciples, not his loved ones. Guys, three years walking day and night, sleeping, eating, sharing, ministering, laboring together. None of those people helped him. Read um, Psalm uh, 55. All my friends have rejected me. No one has been with him. He's on his own, except for that. I'll tell you what, based upon modern approach towards ministry, if there's a man unqualified for ministry, it's Jesus Christ. Because that man's fruit was zil. Nil, right? Nothing. Brothers and sisters, this man, therefore, results with that all of this resulted in severe discouragement and depression. You, you, why did he bleed drops of blood? It's part of it. It wasn't all of it, of course, but that's part of it. The vigor and strength of his youth have been wasted. He's poured out his strength to accomplish the work God had given him, but the result was desolation and a vapor. All that work, all that hardship, all that stress, for what? What? Where am I and what am I doing? Now, a question that we ask is, how did he get, how do you go from verses 1 through 3 to 4a? How do you go there? And the answer that we naturally are going to say is what? Well, he did something wrong. He, he, he took a wrong turn, right? He disobeyed God. He would give given so much, verses 1 through 3, so much promise and potential, but he wasted it on his sin. But we can't say that here of this servant. Why? Because 2 Corinthians 5, 20, uh, 21 and other such passages say that he was without sin. This is not because of his sin. Why is this man struggling so much? Because, brothers and sisters, trial and difficulty we are not immune from. Though we are saved in Christ, God will not protect us from trial and unity or, or, or uh, trial and difficulty. That's part of the tempering process for you and me. Right? Think of examples in Scripture. It's not just the servant. Joshua, called by God, be strong and courageous, take the promised land. It wasn't just as soon as he did that, what happened? He's on his face in tears, pleading to God, wondering, God, why have you brought so much destruction against us from this small little group of people from Ai? You think of Moses, called by God. You think of his calling. And yet he spent many times discouraged, hurting, depressed before God. God, why did you raise me up? Why did you call me to do this? You think of someone like Peter. You know, upon this rock I'll build my church. Peter's not the rock. But he's the one who said, who made the incredible profession of faith, which was the rock upon which Jesus Christ would build his church. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? That's the, church. That's the foundation of the church. Think of Peter. And in Acts 12, what do you see Peter doing? He's in a prison waiting death. You look at Paul. Suffered throughout his entire ministry, his lifetime. Remember what, what when... Uh, um, uh, the prophet came, and what did he tell Paul? Paul, God has raised you up to show you how much you must suffer. 
And what did he say? For we are fools for Christ's sake. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Brothers and sisters, this is where, this where ministry brings us. But none of this compares to Christ. Born in obscurity. And we're talking about, think of what we just learned from John. Every gospel passage we read, we must read it through this fourfold lens. Four lenses. He is God, who is man, fully man, who, do, who, who, who came to dwell amongst us, to pitch his tent with us, to walk with us, that we might enjoy refreshment in God. So this is God Almighty born in obscurity, right? In his life, he had less wealth than a beggar. His followers were the despised and outcasts of the world. After three years of exhausting work, he was rejected by all, even those closest to him. He had nothing to show for his work but that one thief on the cross. And then he died alone on a Roman cross, bereft of everything and everybody, even God. It's easy to think of Christ in terms of his deity, but brothers and sisters, make no mistake, as a man, this, this, this was hard. Truly, from the perspective of the world, Christ was a, was a complete and dismal failure. And though he wasn't his God, don't let that make you think that he didn't feel it. Listen again, Isaiah 49. Uh, but I said, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength on nothing in vanity. What is that telling us about Christ? Christ was a man of sorrows. And he didn't sin. Now, if our Savior was a man of sorrows, he didn't sin. What does that tell you by way of expectation you ought to have when it comes to life on this world? Now you go, this is doomy and gloomy and heavy. It is. What are you expecting this coming year? You know, we had a time during Thanksgiving, no, Christmas meal. The question was raised, hey, what's your, what's your goals for this coming year? And I will, I will uh, I'll confess, I didn't have a whole lot of goals. I usually don't make them because I always break them. Right? The things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. So I rarely make New Year's resolutions. But you know what I do? What I want to do? I want to not plan for what I'm going to do. I want to plan for what I want to be. And I want to plan that God would make me that kind of man. And the way he makes us that kind of man is by giving us biblical expectations. This coming year, for some of us, will be a banner year. But for some of us, it won't be. And whether it's a banner year or a struggling year, what will be the mind that you bring to those victories or those defeats? That's the question. Because, brothers and sisters, life will find every one of us here at times struggling. And there are many here today who are in that exact state. Now, the hard part, brothers and sisters, is that's not the message you hear from many evangelical pulpits today. Pulpits today are cheerleading. They want you to leave your built up and, and, and encouraged to go conquer the giants of your life, right? Ignoring such passages like John 16, in the world you have tribulation. Galatians 5, you will not do the things that you please. 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Habakkuk 1, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? Right? Uh, in, in, in ignorance of those, they'll say, God has a wonderful plan for your life this year. 
I can feel it. Years ago, I was on vacation. That was the sermon on the last Sunday of the month of the year that we were on. And that message was, this was a rough year for many of you, but God has laid it upon my heart to come and tell you, this year is going to be a great year for every one of you. And people were cheering. Brothers and sisters, it may be a great year. But if you're one of those people struggling in those churches like the Joel Olstein churches, which is all about next year will be a better year, claim it. What do you do when you're struggling? What do you do? You do one of three things. One is you fake it till you make it. You try harder, you try harder, you try harder, hoping that it works. Secondly, you blame yourself. Why isn't my life better? It's because I don't have enough faith. I'm not diligent and faithful enough to God. Or you finally say, or you, or you end up saying, it's a fraud. Jesus Christ is a fraud. It doesn't work. Family of God, understand, as, the, as your Savior went, as the leader goes, so go the people. As the master, so will be his servants. Jesus Christ struggled as a servant of God. So much so that on the cross, perhaps this is where he, this, this verse was fulfilled. I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength on nothing and vanity. All right, well, what's his, con- now, that's a bummer. What's his consolation? How do we, how do we save this sermon from a, a nosedive, right? I'm on a, a death spiral. How do we save this? How do we save this passage? Well, thankfully, we don't. God did. Notice with me 4B. And the incredible consolation, twofold. One, verse 4b, yet surely, surely is, uh, means without question or doubt. Okay, yes, I'm depressed, I'm d- discouraged, but there is no doubt, in, in no, no, not one atom of doubt in my being that does not believe that the justice due to me is with the Lord. The, the fill in here is approval. Okay, what, what is it? What's our consolation? God's approval. The word for justice here is not the word, word for a judgment, like a judgment of, of guilty. The word here is, is the idea of approval. It's a vindication. It's a judgment of, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's the idea. So this is not a negative thing. This is a positive thing. Yet, surely without a shadow of a doubt, that which keeps me going is this simple thing. God approves of me. Is that incredible? That's the consolation. Brothers and sisters, hear the message God wants us all to bank on in this coming year. Whether you have a banner year or a bad year, whether your year is bad because of your sin, or because of your rebellion. This is God's message uh, to you. God, in and through it all, delights in you. Do you believe that? That's the message. What keeps us in that times of discouragement from despair? What keeps us from that? The knowledge that God Almighty approves of me. Listen, listen to Zephaniah 3. So this Zephaniah was written in 622 to these exiles whom Isaiah is addressing here. And this is God's message to those very same exiles who are in exile because of the nation's sin. They're there because of their sin. 
Now, you might have faithful Jews who, who, sinful as they were, were faithful to God in so many ways. They're still there because of sin. Okay, listen to the message of God. Zephaniah 3.16. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, these people are in chains, going to exile. Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands Fall limp because you're so discouraged. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. As you are struggling this coming year, whatever struggles you may have, whatever victories you may have, understand a victorious warrior is beside you, behind you, he goes before you, and within you. The King of kings and Lord of lords is with you. So he says, understand, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. That uh, uh, commentaries reference this in, with Isaiah 50, um, 53, how Jesus Christ was quiet in his suffering. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Do you know God's disposition as you struggle this coming year with parenting, with a difficult marriage, with ill health, with singleness, with marriedness, with all the things, the sundry things that this 2024 is going to give us? Do you know your consolation? It's this. The Lord, our victorious warrior, approves of you. He delights in you. He rejoices in you. Brothers and sisters, you must believe that if you're going to be a healthy Christian. Hear that. If you think for one moment God is up in the heavens with a bony finger judging you because of the things that you do this coming year or, or have done, you can never grow in your walk with God. You will struggle. Who, who would want to love a God like that? That's what Satan wants you to believe about, about, about God. He's this angry judge with a bony finger pointed at you going, look, you failed again. Another whap in the face. The message that the servant had here, the message of Zephaniah was one and the same. God approves of me, which means a difficult life is, is not discordant or out of place with someone whom God loves. In fact, if you were to change it over, you'd be Paul saying, I am convinced that the glory of God far outweighs the things of this life, right? Though our outward man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. How is that, Paul? Because you know God delights in you. Yes, parenting's hard. Yes, ill health's hard. Yes, these, these horrible things awaiting us. In 2024, whatever they may be, or the victories that we might be tempted to be proud with. Yes, they're going to be there. But brothers and sisters, may your joy, your fountain of life, your glory not be in the work of your hands, but in the glory and the honor of God who delights in you. That's the message of the servant here. God, Christ spent his entire ministry knowing God delighted in him. You know the hand when peace like a river, I'm not going to quote the first stanza. That's the one we always quote. His children just died. Peace like a river, right? Let me share with you a couple more lines. What was the basis 
of Horatio Spafford saying, it's well with my soul. How could he say that? Well, he tells us, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but all of it. All of it, the sins I know, the sins I don't know, has been nailed to the cross. I'm not, I don't bear it anymore. No longer is it part of my account. It is well with my soul. God is pleased with me. And thus, though Satan might buffet, and trials come in 2024, yet this, let this blessed assurance control your thoughts, your mind, your emotions, that Christ has regarded your helpless estate. It's well. It's well with your soul. That's the first consolation. Wow. Secondly, I could, I could, we could walk away with that. That's food for, the, for our, our bellies, right? Um, that'll put meat on, on, on these bones. Secondly, would you notice God's reward? It didn't end there. There's more. Verse 4b, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Notice, first of all, what his reward is not. His reward was not the bank. It wasn't property. It wasn't prestige. It wasn't power. It wasn't health. It wasn't all the things that you and I think are testimony of God's approval of man. If he loved me, he would bless me horizontally. This is not his reward. His reward has nothing to do with the horizontal. Notice what his reward is. My reward is with my God. Now, what does that mean? Well, quickly with me, go to Matthew 19, 28. Matthew 19, if, we, if you step back from Scripture and do a doctrine, a study, a systematic theology on reward, and there's a lot of words for reward in Scripture, a lot of passages for rewards in Scripture. Notice with me Matthew 19, verses 28 through 29. We read these words. Truly I say to you, this is Peter's declaration uh, in responding to Peter's declaration and the other disciples that, that, that they had sacrificed so much for Jesus. Christ said, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the, in the regeneration when the Son of Man comes will sit on his glorious throne. You also will sit upon 12, 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Pretty cool. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms, for my name's sake, in 2024. Every one of you have lost these things. Shall receive many times as much and as the ultimate reward shall inherit eternal life. Exegetically, you cannot dice this any other way than to say this. Eternal life is the chief reward that God gives his people. Yeah, in glory, you'll walk on gold streets. In glory, you'll have brothers and sisters galore. In glory, you have all these things. But guys, brothers and sisters, the bride eyes not her garment, but her beloved's face. I will not gaze at glory, all the trinkets, but on the king of grace. Not on the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land, right? So we, in glory, all those trinkets, well, there, you can get those, Jesus says. But on top of it, you're going to have eternal life. You walk away saying, so... I lost a child, I got cancer, I have a difficult, I lost my job, I mean, all these horrible things, and the knowledge in the, in the you know, un, um, what's the word, very lack of um, helpful words are, you've got eternal life. When you die, at the end, you get to go be Jesus. That's not what this text says. 
Eternal life. What is eternal life? The chief reward of every Christian is eternal life. What's eternal life? Well, for that, we go back to John 17, 3, which you've heard me quote many times. John 17, 3 in your Bibles. We read these words, high priestly prayer. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This is eternal life, that they may know thee. What's the word know there? Gnosko. What's the word gnosko mean? It does not mean to be familiar with. It means it's a relational term. As in Cain knew his wife and she conceived. You only have a known among all the families of the earth. Amos, Matthew 7, I never knew you, be gone. It's a relational term. What is eternal life? It is a love relationship with God, with Christ. First compensation, what did I say? What's my, my main point here? Consolation. First consolation. God delights in you, Christian. Yeah, but what if I, God delights in you? Secondly, what's the consolation? Eternal life. What's that? A love relationship with God. You know what's crazy? If God's reward was, was horizontal, physical, relational, money, power, jobs, fame, a good cyclone could take all that away, right? A good hurricane could take all that away. What cannot be taken from you in the deepest, darkest dungeon. A love relationship with Christ. You bring him with you. He not only is with us, he not only approves of us, so you're in prison because you've done something wrong. He's not there going, you wicked, horrible child. He is there seeking your fellowship. Think of the prodigal son. The father was not sitting on the porch. It says the father was looking for him. What is the, cons the uh, uh, consolation? It's the fact that God delights in us. And secondly, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ seeks to have fellowship with me, and I get to have fellowship with him. Eternal life on this side of the grave, therefore, is a growing intimacy with Christ. A growing intimacy with Christ. If you don't value that, that you value money, and fame, and all the other stuff. That, that what I just share with you and saying, oh, more religious stuff. But those of you who know, know that there's no greater reward that you could ever have than that. Notice how this passage ends. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel. What is that telling you? A repeat of what he just said. I delight in you. I've redeemed you. There's nothing in you I don't delight in. You are my child, positionally, obviously, and practically soon. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the, it's, it's Holy One. In other words, you cannot stop him. He's, he's awesome. To the despised one. So everyone this coming year, despised, abhorred by the nation, servant of rulers. You've lost your position. You're now a servant of rulers, which is which is pretty bad. Guess what he says? Kings shall see and arise. Princes shall bow down. The very kings you're serving are going to bow down and rise. Now, brothers and sisters, we interpret this in reference to Christ. Clearly, no, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ Lord. But we're going to be with him. And being with him when Jesus Christ walks in with us as his court, as we, as we follow along with him, kings 
whom we are serving will bow. The very ones who, who are uh, wicked and, and, and harsh and mean in our service, they will bow. Their tongues will bow to the floor. How so? Three reasons. Because of the Lord who is faithful. He's able to be trusted. He's going to carry out his promises. Secondly, the Holy One of Israel, our sovereign God who cannot be thwarted. Thirdly, who has chosen you. That word chosen is a, is a love word. He's, he's chosen to marry you. He's, he's wed you. That's why in 2024, whether it's a good year for you, whatever you call good, or a bad year, whatever you call bad, understand this, brothers and sisters, in and through it all, this sovereign God has wed you. Why? Because he loves you, he delights in you, and he has given you so much by way of uh, position. Indeed, God approves of you. If I can encourage you, build your house on that rock. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this passage. As I think of this coming year, and Lord, it may be a wonderful year for me, or it may be a difficult one. God, I pray for me, I pray for us all, that you give us the grace to remember this passage, to come back to it again and again and again. For as we just saw, it describes Jesus Christ who did no wrong, who was, who was without sin. And yet, Lord, suffered so much on this earth, yet his consolation is our consolation. The knowledge of your approval, the fellowship we have with you, and the fact that you've chosen us to wed us before the world began. Lord, our souls are full looking not at the things which are perishing, but the things which are not perishing. Father, we see that the, that the difficulties and the trials of this life are equipping us and, pre and preparing us for the eternal way to glory that lies before us, that is with us this very moment. I pray, O oh Lord, you give us the grace this coming year, regardless of our status, our station, that you'd give us the grace with eyes of faith to behold you are God the glory, the greatness of your being, the majesty, the sovereignty, the holiness, the transcendence. But then, O oh Lord, as well, to see the kindness, the imminence, the closeness of your being in our lives. And may you, therefore, be the apple of our eye, that you would be our chief pleasure, our greatest glory, our life, our all. God, we pray this unto your glory and namesake. Amen. Amen. Let's go.